Hey everyone, welcome to Reformed Podmatics, hosted by the pastors of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. It's Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey, and this podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond. All right, everybody. Well, welcome back to Reformed Podmatics. I'm Pastor Zach. And I'm Pastor Mark. And today we are going to be continuing on with our a little bit of a mini-series we've mm. been doing over the past couple of episodes, uh, where we're talking about, really about new morality, new ethics that are coming into the church and that are causing a lot of conversation to take place and dialogue over issues such as sexuality. Uh, that's that's sort of the big one in our church right now. Um, mm. But also just different ways of approaching moral questions and so on. And so... In the past couple of weeks, we've looked at the idea of repentance in the scriptures and that repentance is a calling to change our lives and that it is uh, it is by, by repentance that we recognize that we are out of line with God's will and that we must turn and reorient ourselves to him. And we've now looked at biblical authority and how the, the word of God speaks a word over our lives that... Uh, demands our our obedience commands our our worship our reverence and, and he is our lord in mm-hmm. fact and so he gets to tell us and determine for us how we live today we're going to be taking a little bit of a detour by looking at the role of tradition when it comes particularly to to uh, shifting moral values mm-hmm. and positions within the church and so to do this, we have to talk a lot about tradition, and we have to talk about its place in the life of the church and even in the life of the ordinary Christian. And you may even hear that word tradition, mm-hmm. and your red flags begin to go up. Tradition? Isn't that sort of a Catholic thing? That's not a, that's not a Protestant thing. Aren't we just the ones who hold to the scriptures? And a lot of this is not even—that's not even true. That's, that's not actually the right way of understanding mm-hmm the difference between Catholic and Protestant. A lot of this uh, aversion we have to tradition comes because of our Western and particularly our, our, our American individualism, our insistence mm-hmm. on doing things our own way and reading the scriptures according to our very personal interpretation. And so part of what we have to do in all of this is ask the question, what do we mean by tradition? And we have to also ask the question, how does tradition relate to the authority of Scripture? If we have a very high view of the authority of Scripture, like we talked about last week, don't we have to uh, very much minimize the place of tradition in the in the life of the church? And so these are some of the things we'll be getting at today. Um, mm-hmm. So, Mark, how do you how do you like to talk about tradition? When somebody asks you about uh, church history, do you take a more minimizing view of church history, uh, or or do you have a very high view of church history? Where would you say you land in, in the middle of all that? Well, definitely want to regard tradition as a gift. It's a good thing that 
we are surrounded by the great cloud of witnesses, which I think is a reference um, not just to the parts of the Bible that continue to speak into us, sort of like the all the characters of the Bible are speaking into our lives, speaking into our faith. That That is true. But um, the witnesses through the centuries continue to speak into our lives, often into situations in our lives in very particular ways. Um, I so often have seen that the dismissive attitude towards the past is a very common thing mm. in um, a lot of these conversations, particularly about sexuality, where, oh, that's the way people used to think. And weren't those people so backwards and unsophisticated? And now we know better, thanks to uh, Freud and um, modern psychology and mm-hmm. uh, the changing of the DSM, which recategorized homosexuality and so forth. And mm-hmm. and, and they can look back at, especially the Puritans, and yeah. <laughs> say, man, they were so stuffy and prudish and backwards and um, unintelligent. Um, it is often the case that when one actually reads old books, you are struck by the profound application that these old uh, sources, what, no matter what century it's coming from almost, hmm. would uh, would speak into the situations that we face right now. So th- I definitely would say we, we should receive tradition as a gift. It's a good thing um, and certainly isn't something that is necessarily at odds with Scripture. Um, it informs our reading of Scripture. Um, so hmm. often it's the case that people have enacted biblical truth uh, they've lived according to what the scriptures said and a lot of times that has led to wonderful revival it's led to wonderful things happening in the world like i think of scotland in um sort of post-reformation scotland where you know, the description of pre-reformation scotland was that it was quite a destitute nation and, and hmm. a very difficult place to live and from the reformation come hospitals and universities and um sort of the social fabric of Scotland was got really woven together again because yeah. of great teaching and and you can just look at that broadly and say wow that's a place where hopefully the same type of thing would happen in uh California and Ripon and America you know throughout the world again mm-hmm. so that's that's one little place where looking to what has happened and seeing what they focused on the gospel um the the law of God as a response to the gospel. It's simple things that we find from tradition that, that can really inform how we do ministry right now. Yeah, I think you really pinpointed an important part of this conversation that has to happen. And it, I, I think as I was hearing you say a lot of those things, I was hearing in my mind C.S. Lewis's mm. essay on the introduction that he wrote for uh, a in his lifetime, a new translation of on the, of on the incarnation by Athanasius. Um, he basically argues against what he calls. This is where he pins the term chronological snobbery mm-hmm. that we have. We look back upon the past and think, man, they were so outdated. They were so uh, backwards in their way of thinking. And thankfully, we've cleared things up, especially since the Enlightenment, mm-hmm. uh, through the rise of modern science. Uh, we've now figured out so much, and we know better now. And when we read ancient texts, we can read them through our own lens and our scientific modern lens, and we can know 
know things better than they knew back then. And I see this a lot. And part of this conversation that we're wanting to address is uh, the questions, as we've said, about sexual ethics in particular. Um, When we talk about the legitimization and affirmation of homosexuality inside the church, one of the immediate biggest problems, other than what we've talked about in the past few weeks, where it contradicts what the Bible has to say, it also goes against the weight of Christian authority for the past 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. And so if the church was to say, you know what, we can sanction the marriage of two men inside the church or two women, we can sanction the uh, transformation the or the change of gender mm-hmm. from male to female. Transition. Yeah. Um, what we have to do in all of that is either to disregard the weight of Christian tradition or we have to completely deny it. Uh, and this is also the case with another more, uh, I would say, more close to home issue, even in the CRC mm-hmm. and in many churches of women's ordination. Uh, the argument had to be made in the 20th century uh, against that of 2,000 years of Christian Christian witness to that issue. And so when we talk about Christian tradition, there's a lot that uh, sort of goes along with it when it comes to these these sorts of issues and so mm. does this christian re- tradition even relate that might be one of the questions we have to look at uh, do we should we have chronological snobbery maybe we should toss it aside uh, and again if we're a protestant some might think shouldn't we just do away with tradition shouldn't it only come down to mm. our interpretation of scripture as we read it today and so we can dig in a little bit to this idea of sola scriptura. What is sola scriptura and what is sola scriptura not? How would you explain this to somebody? Say if you were in an elevator and you only had 60 seconds to explain the concept of sola scriptura, how would we try to approach that conversation? Yeah, I would say based on the belief that one can read the Bible and understand what it says, that scripture is totally sufficient for giving us everything we need for life and godliness, mm-hmm. for pointing us to the gospel itself, the work of Christ in his death and resurrection. And scripture also expounds upon uh, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, so much so that uh, that is absolutely the highest authority for again, our life and doctrine. And yeah. um, and so I, I think it's really important to, to start there and say Scripture is sufficient for yep. giving us yep. what we need to know um, about God, about um, God's law, about our own identity, our own purpose in, in the world, uh, that everything we have is, is right there on the pages of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately people go all kinds of different directions with after that statement is made. Um, they would use that statement to then um, turn the gospel into basically an individual gospel, like all all this this whole Bible, it's really about me, and mm-hmm. um, I need to understand it for myself, and I don't need any pastor or any church, any denomination, any priest telling me um, sort of what it means. 
Um, it's it's a, a sort of a misreading of the priesthood of all believers, basically, um, yeah. is, is basically what I think that is based in. And and that's the great Catholic um, argument against yeah, Protestantism. That's the accusation, that's, correct. That's their, they would, any Catholic priest um, who would levy an, an argument against Protestantism would, is ultimately going to go there, basically um, accusing Protestants, often rightly, of individualizing over-personalizing um, the Bible as just something. It's just between you and God, and, um, you know, as they say, if you want a heresy, send somebody out into the woods with the Bible, <laughs> and uh, they'll come back a heretic, basically. Exactly. Uh, and and so, um, yes, sola scriptura. It, it is, the Bible is sufficient for telling us everything we need for life and godliness, for salvation through Christ, um, but that doesn't mean it necessarily excludes the church or tradition or a pastor. Um, the Bible gives reasons; it commands those things to exist. Churches yeah, yeah. and 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 pastors. <laughs> in in fact, the church is born out of the Word of God, and but the Word of God is spoken into the church, and so those those two work together. And so, one thing that I've found very helpful is in my reading of Richard Hooker, the the uh, great English. You could say reformer. I think that that would be an accurate designation. He's often read as the great proto-Anglo-Catholic, but I think a better case can be made that he was reformed with a capital R uh, in the Church of England. And one of his helpful things that he talks about when he, when he is mentioning the place of the church is that it's the community in which believers are taught and trained to believe what the Bible says. And so... We, this is why we raise children in the church. This is why we catechize children. This is not. This is why we don't just give a, a child a Bible and expect them to pick out <laughs> all the perfect doctrines, but we we help them to read the scriptures in a way that the church has always read the scriptures. Is this wrong? Some might say, uh, but what Mark has said is correct. Is that if somebody just goes out into the woods or they lock themselves in their room for a few days and come out with their own interpretation of Scripture, Scripture can be interpreted very incorrectly. Mm. Uh, this is why <laughs> it's important as a general rule to interpret Scripture in community. Mm -hmm. uh, one exercise I've done with the youth group here at Ammon Valley, or Almond Valley, I should say, for, <laughs> for those of you who are listening outside of Ripon, is I'll give them a passage. I did this once when I was talking about church history with them. So I gave everybody a passage to go and study by themselves for 10 minutes. And then I called them to go and go into small groups and to study the passage in a small group and to try to gather what other people's insights were into this passage. And then finally I called them all together into one big group and we were all sharing insights that we had we had gleaned from across the room and what we realized was that we learned more when we were all together mm -hmm. than as opposed to being just by ourselves uh, and this is a very helpful way of seeing how the community of believers helps us in understanding but I think when it comes to tradition we can also read backwards on that and say we shouldn't just listen to those who are living we shouldn't mm -hmm. just be reading modern modern commentators or watching pastors that are still alive we should also be faithful to listen to what the church has always said and how it can can guide uh, and help us to understand scripture correctly for what scripture is saying 
Yeah, I'd, I'd say um, if somebody is espousing an idea that basically no one has said before, right? which is two men can be married. That would be a new Christian that, that idea. That is a new idea. It has um, right. Homosexuality is a old, uh, it's an old phenomenon. It's been around for uh, thousands of years. Um, but this idea that the church should should sanction such marriages and should call that a marriage, that is a very, very new idea. Hmm. And um, to get to the tradition point, um, when anybody brings an, a new idea in, they would need massive biblical support in order to justify that new idea. So... Um, the traditionalist could possibly be accused of just being anti-change. Um, that's not what we're suggesting at all. Uh, we we think it's a good thing that the Reformation happened. Huh. And um, Martin Luther, although I, I would say he wasn't even bringing in a new idea. Yeah, um, I agree. He wasn't. But, but even if he had been bringing in the idea of sola gratia, sola fide, sola um, uh, scriptura, and so forth, if he even if he had brought that idea in, he could support that idea with mounds and mounds of scriptural support. Mm-hmm. I mean, whole books of the Bible that are basically devoted Romans and Ephesians and Galatians to this topic of salvation by grace through faith. Hmm. So entire books of the Bible supporting his idea, which wasn't even that new of an idea. Yeah, um, and let's contrast that with. Um, what is happening now where a new idea which is is very uh, profoundly impactful of people's lives you know people are going to live their life uh, maybe two men live their life their whole lives mm-hmm. together um being convinced that they are married in the sight of god and being convinced maybe by some people in a church that this is a good thing that new idea would require really really significant biblical support in order to go against tradition, which, of course, uh, I would even say an open and affirming person would have to admit there are not mounds and mounds of biblical evidence that this is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it would They would turn more to general revelation, which we discussed a few episodes ago, instead of to... Yeah. The, instead of sola scriptura, instead of saying, no, this, the Bible is really going to be the source that we go to. And it's interesting how the Reformation is often brought up in this conversation because it, the attack, even from open and affirming Protestants, would be that, well, wasn't the Reformation an innovation? Mm-hmm. Weren't there all sorts of newly innovated doctrines in the Reformation? I would say no. And I think the Protestant has to say yeah. no. Oh, absolutely. If we grant that there were innovations in the Reformation, we are on bad footing. Now, this isn't to say that there were no innovations as a result of Protestantism. I think this is very clear. If you were to compare a modern megachurch to an ancient, we'll say, fourth century church of the the Greek-speaking East— There would be some very distinct differences here. <laughs> right. And so something has happened. I will, I will grant that. But I don't think that the Reformation or the Reformers were themselves putting in any new any new doctrines. 
I realize that if a Catholic is listening to this, they will think I am crazy. But I have spent a good amount of time looking into those claims, particularly on the solas, uh, particularly on sola gratia and sola fide. And a good place to turn for this would be Thomas Oden's book called The Justification Reader, where he shows through many quotes of the church fathers that what they were teaching when it came to Paul's doctrine of salvation was very much in alignment with what the Protestants would say uh, over a thousand years later. Uh, so, Yeah, so even there you're going to have traditional support for mm-hmm. right. um, this Reformation versus um, there is there is no historical traditional support for the right. current sexual ethic that is um, prevalent in now America and um, Europe. Really, yeah. that's another significant factor is we're talking about Europe, Canada, and the United States. Yeah, the rest of the world looks at looks at that and says, the rest of the, of the Christian world looks at that and, and just wonders what has happened there. Yeah. I'm sort of familiar with the story, at least in the Anglican communion right now, where it's those Western countries, so most of Europe, America, Canada, and Asia, or not Asia, Australia, and mm-hmm. New Zealand mm-hmm. are all pushing Which for... Which are essentially Western countries because right. of their, yeah. Because of the Western heritage. Yeah. Yep. And so the rest of the world, particularly the Middle East, the Asian-speaking world, and Africa, the African churches there, are, let's just say, not very happy with mm-hmm. what's going on. And they are more than a little bit uh, perturbed by it. Yeah, I would say, and I think that this is this is true because, and the the tradition doesn't bear out any sort of uh, legitimate authority for for changing opinions on these things. And again, we, we, it needs to be said that the argument for or against being open and affirming does not rest on what tradition has said, mm. but the tradition is helpful in seeing how Christians have always understood Scripture. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that I think really needs to be said. So sola scriptura, just a quick helpful rundown for people, is not solo scriptura, which is sort of a bastardized version. Can I say that? <laughs> uh, a a yeah. transformed, a, a sickly version of sola scriptura. Mm-hmm. Sola scriptura for the reformers was never an aversion to, to tradition unless you were an Anabaptist reformer, part of the quote-unquote, radical reformation. Mm. But for Luther, for Calvin, for Zwingli, and for Cranmer and the English church, they were super invested into what the church fathers and even the medieval theologians had said. If you were to read through the Institutes, for example, Mm. you would find lots of quotes of Augustine, Mm -hmm. of Chrysostom, of Aquinas, Mm -hmm. of Bernard of Clairvaux, you would you would read Calvin very much and very often affirming what these what these great leaders and thinkers of the church have have said over the centuries. Uh, in fact, I've heard it said that Calvin would get into debates with Roman Catholics mm. in in the 16th century, and he would destroy them in debate basically by quoting at length from memory quotes from the church fathers. Mm. And basically making the point that the Reformation is 
in the same stream as the early church. That he was Catholic. That he was the true Catholic. And yeah. in fact, this is what our word reformed means. As I've gone back and read it, William Perkins, a Puritan, uh, would say it meant reformed Catholic. Um, hmm. Other continental reformers would say that this was what it meant to be reformed. It wasn't just that you were a reformed Christian. It was that you were a reformed Catholic. You were standing in the Catholic tradition, but it was the Catholic Church reformed and changed uh, in a sense, but reformed, meaning taken back uh, to mm-hmm. its root, mm-hmm. to the root in the early church, so the scriptures, and then even the church fathers. That was the argument of the reformed church, is that they were the ones who were removing the excesses, sort of the barnacles on the ship, yeah. and restoring the purity of the early church. And I know uh, one topic you've been studying a lot lately, because you've been teaching the youth group about this, is the issue of slavery. Yeah. So some people will say, if you have uh, sola scriptura, it might seem like slavery is defensible. Um, and um, even in the tradition of the church for many years was that... Um, it wasn't ideal, Yeah, but it was more or less just how the, the, way, the way things were. Right, it was sort of a concession, you might say. Um, mm-hmm. And in order to change that tradition that traditional understanding of scripture um, people come in with again mounds and mounds of evidence from the scriptures that this is not how God desires that people would live Um, Mm -hmm. of course you have the exodus itself you have slavery in Israel as a punishment for the Mm -hmm. sin that they've committed against God Um, you have the book of Philemon um, yeah, you have slave important. traders listed alongside other types of sinners, um, uh, the sexually immoral, uh, greedy, um, mm-hmm. slave traders. And so there, there is biblical evidence there that abolitionists use mm-hmm. in order to bring reformation in that area of ethics yeah. into a better way. And so. developed and so Christian yeah. history over time develops. Yeah. It, it doesn't happen immediately. Some might wish that it, it just did happen immediately. Uh but what was laid down, you could say principles in scripture, I would say a legitimate way of thinking about it would be to say that it flowered into the full bloom of abolition. Um and that, I I just bring that up as an example of because so, it's often used by um, those who want to change sexual ethics to say, well, we used to believe that slavery was good and now we don't believe right. that anymore. Um, so first of all, I would quibble with that statement and say, I don't think yeah, uh, I. any true Christian would have believed that slavery was a good thing. Um, and, and the Christian tradition bears that out. Right. Gregory of Nyssa is a good example in the fourth century. Or even as Christianity spreads into Europe, it transforms. Slavery is now illegal. You're not able to enslave any other Christian, which that is maybe a problem. Mm. Sure, I'll grant that. The issue with that, though, is that when everybody around you is Christian, most mm-hmm. most nations in the medieval period weren't enslaving one another. Mm-hmm. It is transformed in a certain sense to the practice of serfdom with feudal lords and so on, but that that is more akin to... Uh, to indentured servitude than it is to slavery, at least as far as I can tell. Mm. Uh, so then in the in the 15th, 16th century, really, when slavery picks up, 
the problem with with that that Christians would come to be very sick with and, and very opposed to was that it was racialized slavery. Right. Slavery. A, a group of people deserved to be slaves. Basically, was the yeah. the rationale, often peddled by non-believers. Yeah. Like people who weren't in church, who maybe would claim to have some sort of church affiliation and in that England day, or the Netherlands. Lots of people or, did. Most yeah. everybody was sort of, a, you were a part of Christendom. Yeah. Right. And, and so this is promoted through the, um, you know, the uh, antebellum South and, and so forth, right? And and it, anyways, it, it, it meshes and morphs into all these different things that eventually um, believers, Christians, who have the scriptures in their hand, come to say no we find in the god's word of course racial slavery is totally antithetical to scripture Mm -hmm. um, but even all slavery is uh is is not a good thing and so we're going to fight against that yeah um and and once again that sola scriptura it it is the bible is used to make those pronouncements and that's a good thing so we should be open to change maybe we are doing something right now that um, <laughs> that the Bible one could convince us of. There are you know fifteen passages that all of a sudden show us, wow, we got to stop doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope that in the short, the near future, abortion is revealed to um, maybe uh, the Lord could produce a revival in the world throughout the world that would help people open their eyes to the biblical teaching on the value of life. Yeah. And um, that would hopefully be a change that would then happen. Um, but uh, again, that would come from the scriptures. Hmm. And uh, tradition, of course, continues to say that abortion is wrong. But um, it seems as though there are diverging traditions that hopefully hmm. will not become established um, that you know the Bible might not speak on this as clearly as we think it should or something along those lines. Yeah. So... That's all really helpful to think about the idea of slavery over the course of the Christian church's history. Mm. Uh, it it grows into this complete outright opposition to it, uh, which mm-hmm. it's it's yeah. As I said, one of the really cool things there is that Gregory of Nyssa, one of the Cappadocian fathers of the fourth century, who helped very much to defend the Nicene Creed and helped lead to the council in 381 in Constantinople, which sort of added to and extended the Nicene Creed. He he also was a very vocal opponent of, of slavery. And the whole reason for him was the Imago Dei Mm. being created in the image of God. But yeah, Mm -hmm. we still want to look at how does tradition speak? And I think to, to do that, it's also really helpful to discuss at least a little bit, the relationship between Scripture and tradition. Uh, some, some would say, especially those following the more Anabaptist Radical Reformation approach, tradition is to be done away with, right? Mm-hmm. And today, we, when we think of the word tradition, we often think of 1950s. And it also needs to be said, <laughs> maybe we should have said that earlier on. Sure, that is it, not yeah. what we are talking about. <laughs> we are not talking about the 1950s. Uh, we're talking about the sort of long story of Christianity and how it has believed things about God and how it has obeyed uh, God's word over the course of time. And so some people would say, no, we should do away with tradition. It's going to 
encroach upon our, a pure reading of God's word. Others would would elevate scripture so high as to place it on the same plane as God's word to sort of make tra- tradition with a capital T a source of revelation, a source of how God mm-hmm. speaks to people. Mm-hmm. And so Roman Catholics often will turn to Second uh, Thessalonians 2.15 where the Apostle Paul writes, Brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Mm. And so they will say that, look, there's oral tradition, the apostles' spoken word, and there's a written tradition, which would be the scriptures. And so we should expect in the church a passing down of tradition that happens sort of orally, uh, mysteriously, through sort of maybe uh, apostolic succession, uh, through the magisterium, the pope, and the different writings and developed dogmas, all the church councils and so on that take place. So there's that's how God speaks to his people is through that, but he also speaks through the Bible. And so this is called dual source theology, where there's two sources mm. of scripture and tradition. And then there's the more reformational view of of scripture and tradition, where we would say that scripture is the only true source of revelation uh or we should say revelation is the only source of revelation god's revelation (laughs) which is through his natural world through general revelation and through scripture that's probably a better way of saying it Mm. and that's the only infallible guide and authority it's the highest court of judgment for all theology and then there's tradition which has a rightful place Mm -hmm. it helps us to understand the scriptures it orients us correctly this is why we still say the apostles creed Uh, it's why we still hold to the nicene creed the athanasian creed this is why we're still interested in the church fathers like augustine or in the puritans because we want to see what christianity has has said all throughout time as much as we possibly can this is what c.s lewis calls mere christianity uh, it's sort of the mm. the mainstream of Christianity. We very much want to, and I would say, in fact, we need to see ourselves as standing in this grand tradition that we call the church, the Christian church throughout the ages. And so when we see things like innovations, new doctrines, new teachings cropping up in the church, our radar should immediately begin to beep in our minds this seems new. This seems like a very new doctrine that's never been taught before. Um, and you can then think why the Reformation was such a controversial time for the, for Europe. Hmm. It was because that was the accusation against mm-hmm. the Reformers. They were saying new things. And we, we do want to say as Protestants, new doctrines are never good. Uh, recovered doctrines are good. Hmm. And so that is the difference. And so when we see something like a push for uh, being open and affirming for LGBTQ and so on, we should be very suspicious. Tradition is a stabilizing force in helping us to understand Scripture. And so, yeah, if you're you're curious about more on this, there's a couple books I'd like to recommend. One is by Keith Matheson. It's called The Shape of Sola Scriptura. It's a good good book to orient you to this whole subject. Another one would be Reformed Catholicity by Mike Allen and Scott Swain. And a third uh, 
would be Biblical Authority After Babel by Kevin Van Hooser. Uh, those three books will be very helpful for you when it comes to uh, understanding really the authority of Scripture and the, the role of tradition in helping us to understand Scripture properly. Um, yeah, but, we see this playing out um, across cultures um, and really within American culture so much that there there is this people are presented with this dichotomy that reformed christians essentially reject that is you will go with tradition blindly or you will individualize so much that you're just going to have to discover your path on your own um even some christians are pulled into that Hmm. uh that belief um it, it's just me and God. You know, I once saw a meme, I think, um, on Facebook that basically said, um, we, we, sh- we don't follow any pastor. We don't follow any person. We follow Jesus, right? And, and that's, again, that's a false dichotomy that we want to reject as Reformed pastors and Reformed mm-hmm. Christians. Like, one text that says the exact opposite of that we, we just follow Jesus, we don't follow any pastor, we don't follow any person, we don't follow any other example. It would be 1 Corinthians 4, mm-hmm. where uh, this is a really, really great text for explaining the role of tradition in following Christ. 1 Corinthians four fifteen through 17 says, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, right? They are very influenced by the surrounding culture. It's I have preached on this and said it's, it's like they're in Las Vegas in a lot of ways. The Corinth, mm-hmm. Corinth, ancient Corinth was a lot like Vegas in its mm-hmm. super cosmopolitan reputation for um, sort of uh, debauchery, mm-hmm. um, just whatever they want to, whatever you what, want to do. You anything know, goes. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth is almost uh, maybe would have been a slogan. I don't know, but. Anyways, this culture is very significant in influencing these Corinthian people yeah. in a lot of ways in some disastrous cases. Uh, Paul gets into those towards the end of 1 Corinthians. And anyways, Paul says to these people in 1 Corinthians 4, even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, so he's saying even though you are secure in Christ, Paul says, you do not have many fathers. Hmm. And that's a to me that's a reference to you do not have rootedness in a tradition that is hmm. helping you to understand the Word of God and understand Christian ethics, understand yeah. the work of Christ. So even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ and you are secure in him, you don't have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. So he's saying, I'm going to be an influence in your life. I'm going to lead you in the right way. And then he says next, therefore I urge you, to imitate me. Um, For this reason, I am sending you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. And so he's basically saying, yes, you're secure in Christ, and there is a tradition that you are called to live into. Um, And so he says, uh, imitate me. I understand um, the word of God. Imitate Timothy, who I'm sending to you, who I've taught. And this just goes down through the centuries where um, it ain't just me and the Bible, you know? It's uh, Yeah. We uh, often think of the the Bereans, right? The noble Bereans who are testing everything according to Scripture. Sure. 
But how would they have done that? Did everybody have their own copy of the Bible back then? <laughs> right. No. It would have been the Septuagint. They would have yeah. been coming together to read it together yeah. and to think through it together yeah. and to discern together. And so that's really important to, to think about too. We often think about being a, be a noble Berean, go back to your home, test what is being said, you know, but and so and that can be a good thing. We should be discerning as individuals, but we should also be be doing things this, together. This text really, it, just reading it in preparation for this podcast has made me want to preach on this text because hmm. um, we should ask when we hear a new idea like same-sex marriage is good, we should ask, is that person espousing this totally rooted in the Word of God and in hmm. the traditions of yeah. the church? Um, is this person communicating the value of that yeah. has been handed down to us from one generation to the next, or is this mostly coming from people without many fathers, mm-hmm. as Paul says? You, you, um, you do not have many fathers. You don't have good influences yeah. speaking into you. Um, I would say for anybody, there's a um, rootlessness, is what Paul's getting to. Totally, and and this is important maybe if anybody listening to this podcast is going to be looking for a church sometime soon go to a church that is rooted with many fathers with many references to church history catechism uh, mm-hmm. uh you know augustine uh and and all the way down through the centuries you're you're going to need rootedness in our culture which is so much like corinth yeah and then to that the the culture is going to be attacking us and um uh, you know that's that's sort of a two kingdom view, I guess. Uh, tipping my <laughs> hand a little bit there, but the culture is going to be influencing us towards worldliness. Certainly, Jesus would agree with that yeah. in his statements. Um, and so, we need many fathers. We need many uh, influences who will pull us along uh, the straight and narrow. Yeah, we live so much in a time that is very rootless, and you could say the only tradition of our day and age, ever since at least the '60s is anti-traditionalism. Anything that's a tradition is seen as bad. It's seen as backwards. It's often seen as repressive or oppressive. And so it's something to be to be cast off. It's something to be to be broken mm-hmm. and with and to and to uh, disobey. And this this is why rebellion mm-hmm. is strangely in the history of the world rebellion is now seen as a a virtue. Mm-hmm. You rebel against any sort of oppressive uh tradition that wants to hold you back or prevent you from being you Mm. and so for me in my christian development as a young adult i I sort of just thought christianity wasn't all that deep Mm. right i sort of just thought christianity you know is billy graham (laughs) Mm. and and it's an experience that i could have and yeah and it's dc talk and it's the newsboys and veggie tales and that that's sort of yeah. Christianity, but seeing the depth of Christianity, seeing that there were men and women who have lived long before me, who gave their lives and spent so much time and energy uh, seeking to 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 teach and to disciple others, that really helped me to have a much grander view. And so, in those ways, those men and women became fathers and mothers to me in the gospel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what Paul's talking about here. And so maybe you're wondering, well, what does the Bible even say about tradition? That's that's one very important text. Sure. And one one interesting thing is that the word tradition or the idea of tradition appears a lot in the, a lot in the New Testament, but uh, doesn't 
always come through in English with that word of tradition. So I already read Second Thessalonians 2.15, and that is an important verse that Protestants should take super seriously. Paul says, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. So what are these traditions? These traditions, a Protestant would argue, are the gospel, the beliefs of the gospel, mm-hmm. the, the proclamation of the gospel. And I would argue this on the basis of 1 Corinthians 15. So we t- looked at this a few weeks ago with our favorite passages episode. Paul, or Mark, excuse me, got into this as one of his favorites. I think you, it was your first favorite, yeah, right? Yeah, it's probably the one that I would quote the most. So yeah. again, just to read it, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that mm-hmm. the Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So, interestingly, when he says, for I delivered, that word, that verb for delivered is paradidomi, which means I passed on a tradition to you. Or you could even read it as, for I traditioned to you as of first importance what I also received. And so the tradition that he is passing on is this tradition of the gospel, Christ dying for our sins, that he was buried and raised on the third day Mm. and you could sort of sound or hear in this, the reverberations of this would, that would become the apostles creed uh, centuries down the road as Christians were thinking about these first things, this tradition of the gospel. And so that's important to keep in mind Uh, Two texts from the gospels themselves Mm. though. when Jesus is speaking that have always had a huge influence on my thinking are from Matthew 16, 18, another important text mm-hmm. in the history of the church especially when it comes to the role of the papacy Matthew or Matthew records Jesus saying to Peter and I tell you you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it so we can debate whether or not Peter is the first pope here but one thing that Protestants and Catholics agree on or at least should agree on is the promise being true Mm-hmm. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it, against, that is, the church. Mm-hmm. I take this to mean, in some way, that the church will never fall away completely. As a good Calvinist, I believe in perseverance of the saints, mm-hmm. and so I believe that the church will always exist in some way. There may be seasons of strength, there may be seasons or years, periods of weakness, uh, but nevertheless, the church will always be there. Yeah, perseverance of the saints could be understood individually and corporately. Yeah, exactly. And so the Spirit of God never stops uh, producing and con- converting people and producing worshipers of God. There may be times where there's more. There may be times where there's less. And this would be in direct opposition to the Mormon church. Right. So the Mormon church has the view that Joseph Smith very much brought the church back to life. The church had died off after the apostles, and now he had sort of resurrected it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And often when I hear the telling of the Reformation, (laughs) in sort of popular level language, it sounds as if Martin Luther miraculously brought this dead corpse back to life. Yeah, it's like he found the seer stone, like uh, like what Joseph Smith <laughs> yeah. did, right? It's almost the same story if it's not told accurately. And that can be a problem with the Protestant understanding of the Reformation. I, I love this quote from Philip Schaff uh, in his book, The Principle of Protestantism. He says, The Reformation is the greatest act of the Catholic Church itself. 
the full ripe fruit of all its better tendencies, particularly mm. of the deep spiritual law conflicts of the Middle Ages, which were as a schoolmaster towards the Protestant doctrine of justification. So he sees in the arguments, the debates that were happening in the medieval ages about salvation, he sees in that the development that would produce the seed for the Reformation to come into full bloom. And he, he attributes the Reformation to the Catholic Church, not just to some lightning rod um, or lightning in a, in a bottle sort, <laughs> of, sort of thing with Martin Luther and the 95 Theses. Yeah. And so that is, that is very important to understand that all of church history can be read, I think, in some way sympathetically. This doesn't mean we need to always take what Augustine or what St. Basil or... Saint so and so, or whatever medieval author you can read, you don't just need to read all of what they say as if it's pure truth. It's not scripture, but you should read it sympathetically and not with chronological snobbery. Hmm. And so you can read it, I would say, wisely. Yeah, um, not with chronological snobbery, meaning we look at the past uh, and uh, are suspicious, but cultural snobbery as well, where we yeah. would say, oh, um, other cultures just don't understand this like like we do. Mm-hmm. Um, that that could be the case that certain cultures value scriptural truth um, in some ways differently than others, and we can mm-hmm. learn from each other. Yeah. Um, like I've I've heard of a a missionary who was once reading the story of uh, the Gospels to a, a tribe and um, got to the part where Judas betrays Jesus and everyone cheered. And mm. because in this culture, it is a real value to um, to sort of pull one over on someone else. Like <laughs> that could be like the best thing that you could do is wow. um, sort of stand under the surface and uh, not seem like uh, you're, you're gonna uh, act in a certain way. And then all of a sudden you, you pull a 180 and you get someone um hmm. so that that was they thought judas was the hero actually of the story because of oh, how man. he convinced he duped jesus right <laughs> and so everyone cheers at that point and so this guy is thinking oh well, i need to we need we have a lot of learning to do um yeah. based, so um there are some cultural values that <laughs> every culture would hold to that are counter counterintuitive yeah. or, or against scripture that we need other cultures to come in and share with us. And so traditions, I I think that's where um, maybe circling back a little bit, um, there are the two extremes that we want to avoid. There's the extreme of total individualism, which rejects tradition. Mm -hmm. But then in the New Testament, in the Gospels, tradition is often spoken of negatively as well by Jesus. So you have your man-made traditions. And And that's what a lot of American Christians will go to in sort of reading against tradition. Right. They would say, oh, like I just preached from the Gospel of Mark, where the Pharisees are all upset that um, the disciples aren't washing their hands before they eat. And uh, Jesus is like, no, uh, that's not nearly as important as yeah. these terrible things that are happening in a person's heart, which make them filthy. So yeah. um, the man-made traditions of Legalism. that have crept in, um, I think of things like indulgences in the Catholic Church and hmm. um, teachings that are uh, you, something like the Crusades, right, which hmm. um, were a man-made, manufactured thing that happened in the church that um, one who would blindly ascribe to the value of those things would be mistaken based on what they find in the scriptures. 
Hmm. So um, I guess that would be sort of my final comment even on the whole conversation is uh, we we would do well to value it and to receive it as a gift, um, yeah. to, to love being surrounded by the great cloud of witnesses um, while at the same time um, guarding ourselves against worship of uh, mm-hmm. of tradition. I, I'll often say this at funerals as I'm preparing to bring a family into the sanctuary. I'll say, we are here to honor our father, not to worship him. Or we're here to honor our uncle, not to worship him. Mm-hmm. And so that's my mm-hmm. view of tradition as well, is that it should be honored and, and seen as this wonderful gift in helping us to interpret the right. scriptures, but never worshiped. Yeah, we're told to honor our father and mother. Yep. That's one of the commandments. That's the fifth commandment. And that doesn't just apply, at least not in our reading of it as Reformed Christians. Uh, the Heidelberg Catechism broadens that principle to ha- respect for all in authority. Mm-hmm. And I think that that means we can also respect our spiritual mothers and fathers as what Paul is talking about in First Corinthians 4 there. Uh, I, I'll end on, on this one last uh, passage from John 16. Jesus is getting the disciples prepared for his departure. And so mm. these chapters uh, are called the farewell discourse where he is explaining his, his leaving uh, and he's telling them what's to come. And he says in John 16 verses 12 and 13, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will t- declare to you the things that are to come. So the idea here is that Jesus is saying, I'm going to leave, but the Spirit will come, and the Spirit will guide you into all truth. Directly, I believe what this applies to is the apostles in their uh, teaching and in their, particularly in their writing of the New Testament. Mm. And so they would go out throughout the first century to different places. Many of them would go uh, far and wide teaching and proclaiming the gospel to new peoples. And so the spirit would be with them. He was going to lead them into all truth to understand things that they had not yet understood. I also believe that this is, this is true of the whole church. The spirit will, will abide in the church. In fact, the church is uh, sort of the manifestation of the spirit's power in the world. Mm Mm-hmm. And so as long as the church exists, the spirit is guiding the church into truth more and more and more. So it's not that we have new truth over time. It's not that we have a new quantity of truth, but our understanding and grip and knowledge of the truth becomes deeper and better. And so the spirit works inside the church. And if this is true, what it means for us when it comes to issues of new ethics Mm. and coming into the church would be that the spirit has changed his mind. Mm. And that I think is a pretty strong argument against new, new understandings of ethics of morality and sexuality in the life of the church. And so that's just something to consider something Mm -hmm. to think about some food for thought. Uh, so 
we also just want to end this by saying we really thank you for for listening. For those of you who have who have joined us for thirty episodes, uh, our wives, yeah, our, our wives. <laughs> thank you, Bailey. Thank you, Pam, for listening, we, for listening and giving feedback. Uh, you parents. are faithful to us. Yeah, <laughs> we we appreciate all of you. I have many friends who I know have listened, and so we just want to say thanks for for sticking sticking with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been really enjoying doing this. It's been it's been fun to put our our thoughts together and and share with the world what we think and to receive feedback, um, even feedback that's that's critical. We appreciate. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, anything you'd like to add to that? No, just I do want to say thank you, and and we're gonna hopefully keep this up. And yeah. um, I, part of the thing with this little series we're doing is we are seeing how the new sexual ethic is so countercultural to uh, reformed biblical Christianity that um, we're coming up with no shortage of topics even uh, <laughs> to, to approach it from uh, different angles. So we've already talked about repentance and the hmm. authority of Scripture and now tradition. And, um, you know, there are even others that, that we're sort of weighing doing more episodes on. So uh, part of the purpose of this is certainly not to just bash people um, to be sort of proved right and we're mm-hmm. just going to obsess about this topic, but um, but really to inspire in all of our listeners this this idea that there is a clear biblical sexual ethic that has been established and... Mm-hmm. Um, needs to be protected and uh, we're going to stand for the truth we're going to stand on the word of god which um lasts forever and um i don't know if we'll do more episodes on sort of tangentially on the topic of same-sex marriage or same-sex attraction but um, i think that we could and it shows that the bible does speak on this a lot I think we have one more, right? We're going to do identity. Yes, we'll we'll talk about identity as well and and that question of identity. That would get maybe more into even the trans issue than Mm -hmm. just the the LG of the LGBTQ+. um, Right. So anyways, uh, we we do not do this with hate in our hearts towards anyone, but we do this with love that we want uh, people, uh, whether they're Christians or not Christians, to hear the truth about what God's Word says about these matters. Yeah, agreed. So, As we said, thanks for sticking with us, you guys, and we'll see you next week. God bless you.